Exchanges Discourse podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gareth J. Johnson. Now, we are a companion podcast to the Interdisciplinary Exchanges Journal, which has been published for the last 10 years by Warwick's Institute of Advanced Study. Now, in most of our episodes, we are talking to authors who have published with the journal about their research, about their academic publication experiences, but also asking them about the advice they've got for new academic authors. On occasion, we also focus in on journal developments itself. In today's episode, we'll be talking with one of our past authors about their paper, about their work, and about their thoughts on publishing too. Once again on the Exchanges uh, Discourse podcast, I am joined by one of our past authors, and actually it's one of our authors on our celebratory 10th birthday issue, so I'm, I'm doubly happy to have uh, this morning uh, Jean Marshall joining us. Good morning, Jean. Morning. Obviously, as we're doing this in sound only, you can't see that it's a frosty, frosty morning uh, today in the shires of England. So, but that doesn't affect us because we're indoors. When we're here to talk, though, about Jean's work, Jean's and her paper particularly called Sustainability. Always like to give my um, authors a chance to introduce themselves. So, Jean, tell us a bit more about yourself and what you're up to. Hi there. So I'm actually a researcher and I'm here at Warwick University working at uh, WMG. The Warwick Manufacturing Group, which uh, is sort of quite an interesting department in that it's considered to be it considers itself kind of a halfway house between a university department and industry. Mm. So, mm. the whole aim of WMG is to enable industry and to promote research that will enable future industry. So that's what we're all about. It's kind of an interesting place for me to end up, actually, because my academic background is very much in polymer chemistry. Mm. I was a polymer synthesist for a long time. And I did some postdoctoral work for quite a long time on quite blue sky projects about mm. polymers and materials that will respond to their environments. So kind of smart materials, I suppose, you would, mm. Mm. Uh, is, the, is the area where you put, put that system. That, uh, that research. From there, I I then made a complete leap into industry and worked on inks for quite a long time, which mm-hmm. is quite uh, and that kind of is an obvious direction to go in because obviously polymer chemistry is quite important to a lot of ink formulation. Mm-hmm. And from from there, I've uh, ended up at WMG currently working on lithium ion batteries. Like it doesn't sound like a natural place for a polymer chemist to be, does it? But actually, there's there's more. Uh, kind of polymer materials in a battery than you think so it is yeah. actually it does actually tie in rather well it's a really interesting sort of career progression you know to, to end up there I, I mean i can i mean i many moons ago used to be a scientist and you know I, i'm aware that many of the people i work with at that time you know have gone in such vastly different directions that i wouldn't suspect your trajectory sounds almost logical to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's as though it sounds almost as though i planned it didn't it <laughs> <laughs> it's always the way we spin it isn't it when we people ask us about our careers well of course it was you know it was totally planned in the same way you know, <laughs> i totally planned to end up in the cultural um, studies areas rather than the biochemical areas i started in yeah it's, it's a totally natural progression <laughs> well we're obviously here today to talk a bit about um your paper which you published with us if folks haven't read it yet the actual full title is sustainability getting everyone involved and there will be a link to that paper actually in the description for this episode as well so you'll be able to find it so for those poor people who haven't had a chance to read it yet jane can you tell us a bit more of what it's about this paper was a sort of a culmination of some uh, thinking and reading that i'd been doing at the time where 
obviously sustainability is currently a hot topic in research fields, many diverse research fields, uh, and it's something that's going to become more and more important over the course of the next couple of decades, because as a a species, then humans are doing worse, not better, in terms of living sustainably. Uh, So there's a lot of research to be done around this. But I think people are often... No, no, guilty is the wrong word. People are often led into thinking that uh, the solutions to sustainability are going to come from all one area. So mm. some people have a very militant view that it's all about not using plastic anymore. Mm. Other people have another quite militant view that all of the the um, solutions have got to be technological and we shouldn't change right, our behaviour at all. I was saying I sat in a um, a lecture a couple of months ago um, we had in our department and we had some and it was again it was touching on issues of sustainability and we had one of the the audience saying but of course science will solve all these problems exactly yeah so that's the thing that that that, that attitude is one that needs to be overcome actually so I mean I I was reading an article a few weeks ago about somebody who'd come up with an amazing invention to try and use some waste plastics for something else Mm. it was a very interesting paper but then, you know, on the online description, someone in the below the line comments had written something like, oh, this is a much more practical solution than getting us all to sort our plastic into different bins and things. And it's kind of like, you know, you, you can't just have one approach. You have yeah. to go for everything. You have to try. OK, yes, science can come up with some solutions to try and make some recycling processes better, to make manufacturing processes more sustainable. But ultimately, there's going to have to be behavioural change as well. And a lot of that's going to have to come from legislators, actually, and governments, not just the consumer, because as a consumer, it's actually quite difficult to know where everything comes from, isn't it? So if you are using something that says sustainable packaging on the box. Do you know it's really sustainable? There are a lot of places across the world where pristine rainforests have been cut down in order to grow monocultures of plants for supposedly sustainable packaging. And ultimately, I think we can agree that uh, the environmental impact of that is actually worse than if people Mm -hmm. were using petrochemical plastic based plastics i mean it's it's like the, i mean kind of analogous to a lot of the discussions around electric versus uh, petrol and diesel cars and you know there's mm. those who sort of try oh well, you know but of course you know building an electric car over its life requires far more energy far more materials than than a comparable petrol car but yes, yes. that's not taking into account the ongoing emissions from the use of the thing so it's yes as you say it's that's a complex area <laughs> and cars are an interesting one because because people Sometimes people latch onto the idea that, you know, you still have to charge the batteries up. So the energy is still coming from somewhere. So it's just as bad as a petrol car, right? But actually, it isn't. Partly because electric motors are more efficient than petrol ones. So you get more miles out of your particular unit of fossil fuel. But also because, certainly in the in the UK, I think it's currently about a third of the energy you get from the grid comes from renewable sources. Mm. So that's better than just burning the petrol in the car in some countries is actually more efficient than that so uh, in in countries where there's a lot of hydrothermal energy for example mm-hmm. then more of the grid will be renewables and then driving your electric car becomes very good compared to conventional fuels so there's a message to be had about that but also it's about 
sometimes it's about being the early adopters so Mm. okay electric cars aren't the most convenient thing at the moment you need to charge them up you know the infrastructure isn't completely there but if no one ever tries building and and using electric cars then no one will ever try and build and use electric cars someone has to get the industry going it's almost like you need to get to that tipping point when they become ubiquitous and in terms you know the, the cost to the consumer as well that drives the cost down because there are the mass production of them is, is scaled up to the degree because the demand is there for them That's um, right. the strange thing i find electric cars when i'm walking around my very remote village <laughs> just when they sneak up on me when there's no pavements it's just it's sort yes of, there's, so, there's times when I think we need to go back to the little man walking in front of them with the red flag, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I think some manufacturers actually make them uh, making them artificially make a noise, don't they? So just to make sure that uh, the uh, number of accidents involving pedestrians isn't going to go up too badly. There was a lot to talk about in your article on, on mm. this topic. And I think I think particularly right. one, and I think with the, the, the theme of our issue being kind of really reflecting back over the last 10 years, something like this, looking back and looking forward, was so timely. Hmm. Well, I suppose when I was thinking, reading and thinking about this, and uh, you had this uh, call for articles on authentic interdisciplinarity, I suppose the thinking kind of crystallised into the idea for that paper from there, really, because in modern life, there isn't really more of an interdisciplinary mm. research topic, is there? From most most sort of, of the, I'll say the science disciplines within the university can can sort of relate to sustainability in some way mm-hmm. um, and even in other areas too actually so uh, if we think about our colleagues who are looking in areas such as art and design and architecture there's more and more of an interest in using sustainably sourced materials how can we actually make the sustainability of the material into an asset rather than rather than a challenge and that's quite important, actually, because, I mean, certainly in terms of the area of plastics, we do have some bioplastics, which are generated from sustainable, supposedly sustainable sources rather mm. than petrochemicals, although, as we've said, that's yes. problematic <laughs> too. But a lot of those plastics are not as good as the petrochemical plastics for many applications. Mm-hmm. So it's about how do we make use of that anyway, how of those characteristics how do we make it work for us and there's technological and scientific advances to be made there too so to make those plant-based plastics better whilst still keeping the aspect of them that's useful which is the fact that they're a bit often a bit more degradable yeah sustainably a bit more sustainably sourced and uh, more degradable than um, traditional petrochemical based plastics I mean, I just think when I get some magazines in the post now over the last couple of years, they've moved away from just being inside a film cover that is clearly not very easily recyclable in any way to either biodegradable um, yes. covers or paper. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, and that, that's an interesting one, actually, because that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? But mm. the problem is that if you just stick it in your blue bin, some councils will actually tell you not to do that because even mm. though it's biodegradable because of course if it gets just put in the blue bin with all the other plastics it can't be recycled in the same way that other plastics no. can so it needs to be properly composted so, and that's the debate i often have when i look at my go you know my, my wife who does work in an, an environmental and, um, related area and i say right it's biodegradable now is that 
compostable? Do I need to put it in our compost? Is mm-hmm. it biodegradable where you can dispose of it somewhere else? Is it landfill disposable? And I, and I think, you know, this yep. we are two relatively smart people who feel, you know, fairly switched on to this area, and we're struggling to yes, do exactly. right things in the appropriate this thing. This is the, the hard problem that it's, it's often not obvious what to do <laughs> with mm. a lot of your plastic waste, and it all has to be really properly sorted and well sorted in order for any of it to be any use. A lot of stuff that I think that people put in their blue bins, I think, is ultimately not going to be useful because it needs to be properly sorted and it all needs to be really clean. Yeah. So a lot of people are very diligent about washing out their plastic stuff, but some people really aren't. And if it isn't clean, it's not going to go into a good plastic waste stream. Exactly. Okay. I mean, that, that that you know that contamination is not going to be any use. So yeah, yeah, I, I am I am one of those people who does wash all their plastic very thoroughly. <laughs> yeah. The compostable plastic is a great idea because then it can go into the compost along with any food that's stuck to it. Mm. So in many ways, that's a that's a terrific idea. But at the minute, if it goes in the blue bin, it can't be recycled along with your other plastics because they're not they're not going for compost. They're going to be sorted into different waste waste streams and supposedly anything that's uh, good, sufficiently good quality will be melted down and used again mm. but um but yes it's interesting you made the point you know saying say, you know going in the blue bin and i know when i've sort of traveled around the country you know the color of the bin changes and what mm. goes in the bin changes which means when you stay at other other places i mean i, I was away in norfolk last week and i was like okay what does the local council recycle do they recycle tetra packs for example which where I live, we do, but I know many places still don't. And so there's that step as well. That, oh, am I going to you know, now contaminate the, the, the waste stream, the recycling stream, by putting in something that's not appropriate to the bin, just because back here in Leicestershire, it is. Yeah, Tetraflax is a particularly bad one, actually. So it, it's good that a lot of um, local councils are starting to address that problem. Hmm. And uh, Pringles cans are all over. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, then Again, there are now specialist recycling facilities for things like that, which are, you know, multi-layer materials, so difficult to recycle. But for a long time, Pringles cans were one of the worst possible culprits for recycling. <laughs> and the guy who the, the guy who actually came up with the patent, or who had yeah. own, had the original patent on the Pringles can, actually chose to be. He was so proud of his invention that he chose to be. His ashes were buried in a Pringles can, <laughs> um, which is a. An interesting story, given that what we now know about the uh, relative biodegradability and recyclability <laughs> of, of Pringles cans, I don't think it's a recommended method for uh, disposal of human remains. Wow! So the the humble Pringle can is so complex. Yeah, and I, I, I now mm. I think about it, that mix of the, the plastic, the metal, the cardboard, all of it. Yes, it's it's yeah, just make and and also because it's all stuck to, it's all stuck together with adhesive, mm. so. Separating all the different bits out for effective recycling is a very specialist job. Wow. Well, as I say, there's a lot to say on this, and there's a lot of, of interest in this article as well about this, this folks. But we're going to move on to our next bit of our conversation now. One of the things I always ask as well, um, people, is kind of a follow-on. You know, if you've published with exchanges, fantastic, great. So, what what are you working on next then in terms of publications? So, as I, as I mentioned at the moment, I'm working in the area of lithium-ion batteries. Mm. So I'm looking at general areas such as how how can we replace some of the nastier materials in the lithium-ion battery with things that are a bit more environmentally benign or a bit safer. Uh, I can't I can't go into too many details about quite no. of areas of my research because a lot of it's quite commercially sensitive. But no, that's the general area. So um, lithium-ion batteries, as we know, 
are useful for electric cars and in that way they can be environmentally friendly but batteries by themselves are not particularly environmentally things they tend to use quite a lot of materials that are either toxic or flammable or sourced from uh, not particularly stable mm. supply chains yes so for, <laughs> uh, for example yeah, most modern lithium-ion batteries will include elements such as cobalt different metals and those are mined from only a few different countries across the world. And as I mentioned, we've also got quite a lot of polymer in there as well. So there's there there are ways that we can look to try and uh, re- replace some of those materials with more environmentally things, either more environmentally friendly or just safer things. Mm, excellent. Well, yeah, I think good good luck with the, the publication area. I mean, I, I you know I'm always fascinated by sort of battery advances because I know particularly with electric cars that the whole the question of the you know the weight of the batteries at the moment for many of them that is one of the issues and moving to the light lighter materials yeah, and light weighting and also more sustainable materials are two massive areas it's one of the reasons why at the moment quite a hot topic is to, to look at the change from lithium-ion batteries to sodium-ion batteries mm, mm. one reason for that change could be that obviously sodium is more abundant it's easier you know the supply chains would be better it's easier to get hold of it but then you also, but of course, then you trade off. You've got some issues around safety, vulnerability, and so on. So there, there are a number of different approaches that are being taken in this area. But there's also, it's also quite an exciting area to be in because there are so many people working on this at the moment because it is such an important problem in so many areas of industry. Mm, mm, absolutely. Well, of course, one of the other things I always ask a bit as a bit of a follow up as well is, you know, I, I collect, ta- you know, tales of good publishing and tales of bad publishing experiences, you know, not not particularly related to exchanges, just from your, your, your career. I think this is partly because you know, a lot of our listeners are early career researchers who are kind of interested in hearing they're not alone in experiencing some of these things. But have you had any particularly memorable, good or bad publishing experiences <laughs> over the years? So I think compared to a lot of people, I seem to have had quite a lot of luck during uh, my career. <laughs> I, I don't really have any horror stories. I don't, I know, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. You know, you hear people <laughs> who say that, you know, Reviewer 3 was clearly one of our competitors and therefore, you know, the, the paper got chucked out, or whatever. I haven't really had any of that. It's, I, I've mostly had reasonable feedback from people and been able to use the peer review process to be able to make publications better. So, on the whole, I would say, um, in terms of Writing and publishing papers, mm. it's very much because of obviously the area that I'm in. Most of the papers that I write are collaborative. Mm. This, uh, mm. this this particular paper for exchanges was very unusual in that sense that uh, it was a single paper. Uh, normally, the most painful part of the process is just the collaborative process where you've got sort of five or six people working on the same thing, and someone has to bring it all together and uh, make it into a sensible, coherent paper. I would say that's. Um, that's a much longer, more painful part of the process than the actual publishing part. As far mm. as I'm concerned, once it's submitted, then things are generally better. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with that. I mean, I, I love writing things collaboratively, but yeah, I absolutely recognise that that's it's not, not only the bringing it all together, there's that moment when your collaborating author suddenly has other things on their plate. <laughs> Stop yes, responding to it can take a long time. I want to move forward with this, but please get, it, get back in touch. <laughs> I suppose that's the kind of the take-home message of that, isn't it? 
the thing to do if, if in order to, in order to have a good experience with the publishing industry make the manuscript as good as you can make it before you submit it and then you have a much better time it's so, true i mean it it, it it is true I mean, it's one of the one of the things that you know always gladdens my heart is when i open a new submission to exchanges and i go oh this is nicely written already i'm you know this, this is going to be i would expect relatively painless for us to get through to publication i'm, I'm not always right because sometimes <laughs> reviewers as we've said can come and take a totally different view on on the paper you know my first reading of it isn't always you know correct and accurate but it, it, I, I am so much happier when I do get what a submission. Oh, this is good. It's yeah. clear. It's exciting. It's engaging. The first few paragraphs have drawn me in. Away we go. Great. Yeah. As opposed to those submissions we get where they clearly need another couple of passes of proofreading. Yeah. This is, I mean, also appropriate for the journal as well. So, as mm. um, as a peer reviewer myself, in mm. many cases, um, I, I rejected a couple of papers purely because although the paper itself was quite reasonable, the topic was completely unrelated to what the journal normally <laughs> publishes things in. And in that case, you have to say that's the only feedback you can give, isn't it? The paper is OK, but it's not suitable for this journal. So submit it somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've even had that as an, as an editor. I mean, I've, a paper we had earlier this year that was actually a well-written piece. Very interesting. It was on construction techniques in a particular country, but it read as a book chapter. Mm. I, I just I, I read it two or three times. I just can't convince myself this is a research article or, or a critical reflection. Um, I had to throw back to the author saying, "Yes, great, fantastic, actually, really well written, really engaging. We are not the right place for it. Mm. You know, you will find this will be much more exciting if you can find a collection to add it to, or if you can find a journal that's more interested in sort of more practitioner-based guidance. It was a, a little didactic for my taste uh, as a piece, but well written." Sorry, listeners, even a well-written article can get turned down. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's well-written, then it ought to find a home somewhere. So that's... Exactly. This is it. And my expectation is they, they found somewhere quickly. <laughs> mm -hmm. We've kind of touched on my last question, which was going to be advice for um, for first-time authors. So I, I, unless you think there's an, any of those nuggets of gold you'd like to share? Well, it's all kind of the, I guess, the same advice that everyone would give, isn't it? So make sure you choose the journal correctly. Mm -hmm. Uh, put some thought into that make the manuscript as good as you absolutely can mm. before you submit anything and also I think some people fall into the trap of I must submit to nature otherwise my mm. career is meaningless I don't think that's true at all I think uh, it's more important to publish mm. and get your work out there than to necessarily hit the uh, the highest impact journals obviously mm. that, that doesn't mean you have to submit to some random journal that no one's ever going to read you know you should you should as a as an early career researcher you should aim for decent journals in your field but not get too downhearted if you don't submit to something with an impact factor of 30. Mm, mm. Yes yeah, so I was going to say it's better better to be read than uh, waiting to be read I always think. <laughs> yes that's right and I also there's there's an argument to be had that the perfect is the energy of the finished mm. so it's not worth spending three years to make your publication as perfect as possible, um, but you definitely put the effort in to make it as everything <laughs> as you can before you submit. It, it is interesting. It's a conversation I've had time, time again with authors is that whole sort of when do I let go of my manuscript and send it off? One more pass, one more pass. And it's like, look, you've got to get it sent. I know myself, I wrote something um, earlier this year and I was hesitating over the submit button for as long as possible, going, maybe if I just have another little tweak of the introduction, maybe I thought, oh, just 
Get it off. Get it off. <laughs> get it sent. Move on to the next task you've got. Yeah, the next thing. Yeah, because the the other tasks are not going to go away whilst you're uh, perfecting one paper. That's true. Well, Jean, we've had a lovely discussion. I very much enjoyed that. Thank you so much for coming on the Exchanges Discourse podcast. Thank you very much. And as I said, folks, you can read Jean's paper via the link in the description below. And of course, I'd like to thank my guest for coming in to talk with us today. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Exchanges Discord podcast with myself, Dr. Garrett J. Johnson. Now, if you wanted to find out more about the Exchanges Journal, the publications we've been discussing, there, of course, are links in the episode description. You can also find us easily online by searching for Exchanges Journal Warwick. Of course, if you have a question or want to get in touch with me directly, you can reach us by email as exchangesjournal, that's all one word, at warwick.ac.uk. And you'll also find us on Twitter, Blue Sky and Mastodon too. Thank you very much for listening. And of course, don't forget to share, like and subscribe to make sure you catch every single episode of the Exchanges Discord podcast. 